0: Here in Luke chapter 6 we've just uh, come a portion of the way through the Sermon on the plain which is a parallel to the Sermon on the Mount a partial parallel to the Sermon on the Mount although it contains material that's not in the Sermon on the Mount and material um, that's in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is spread throughout as I said throughout uh, Luke's gospel but we're we've uh, processed through we've looked at the um, blesseds and the woes of the blesseds and the woes. And we finished out here with verse 30. I want to back it up just a slight bit to 27. Luke 6:27. But I say to you that, listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. My dad used to say that whenever he had a boss that used to bother him or give him trouble, uh, he, this was true in the military as well as in uh, private contract work, he would pray for them to get a promotion <laughs> 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 to get them out of his hair and I says, why don't you pray for you to get a promotion? He says no I'm praying for my enemies and those who persecute me and those who bother me. He says dad it doesn't say bother you, it just says persecute you and hate you uh, uh, And <laughs> I do not think the idea was to pray for them to get a promotion though, dad, to get them out of your hair yeah. Uh, but no, it's the, yeah, it worked <laughs> He said it yeah, worked nice
1: yeah. <laughs> he, he was praying for it and awarding him at the same time Yeah, there you go
0: yeah. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you That's really tough to do
1: yeah.
0: That is really, really tough to do And it gets harder If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also And from one who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Notice he doesn't say, if anyone shoots you in the cheek, give him the other also to shoot. He's not talking about murder, but he is talking about rejection, even violent rejection. We are not to respond with violence. That doesn't mean you allow them to murder you or someone else. But at the same time, you are not to respond with evil. You are not to respond with violence. And you are to pray for those who but do these things.
1: if you saw him pointing the barrel at your cheek, wouldn't that entitle you to? shoot him before he shoots him. It would entitle you to
0: push the barrel away to stop him to do what is necessary to stop the potentiality of an attack yes.
1: But if he's as far away as you are from me I can't push the barrel no. away. No.
0: Then you you try to extract yourself from the situation and, I forgive you, and if the shoot. only and if and if the only way you can do that is for you and someone else to shoot them, then that may be what has to happen even though that itself is wrong. You understand? There are tragic choices that sometimes have to be made. And sometimes you have to um, do one thing that is admittedly imperfect in order to stop something which is even worse from occurring, okay? but what the statement here does not entail is deadly violence it simply entails basic violence or rejection or exclusion Uh, I do want to make that clear Um, now Jesus took it to the ultimate but that's Jesus are we to take it to the ultimate we might personally be called to for ourselves But this doesn't lay that on us at this level. Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Well, that's hard. Someone steals from you, don't get them back. Do to others. And here's the operative line, by the way. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Do to others as you would have them to do. The the, the golden rule. Not he who has the goal rules. Not do to others before they do to you, but do unto others as you would have them do to you. The uh, the contrapositive of that is don't do to others what you don't want done to yourself. Which is, by the way, Buddha's affirmation. They both work, and one implies the other. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? So if you missed it, if you didn't catch it in verse 31, he continues in verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again but love your enemies do good and lend expecting nothing in return your reward will be great and you will be children of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked be merciful just as your father is merciful did you catch the irony in that paragraph that wi- un- ungrateful and wicked the lying sinners those 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 all all of those apply to us we're to go beyond that we are called to stretch to reach beyond that that's the essence here picking up at verse 37 do not judge and you will not be judged and part of me right there I I stop I'm not even done with the verse and I got to stop are you kidding me Jesus Judging happens all the time. Regardless of whether or not you judge, someone else is going to judge you. But that's not the principle involved. Let's let's hear the principle. Do not judge and you will not be judged. The question is not someone else judging you. It's beyond that. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. From whom? Who is this in reference to doing the judging, the condemning, the forgiving, and the giving? God. God. It's not what you're going to get from others, although in the end, that is the objective. It's what's coming from God. If you don't judge others, the judgment you receive will will be commensurate with that from God. If you don't judge others, you will not be judged. And that is, by the way, a negative definition there. If you think you have the authority, if you think you have the authority to judge another, guess what? God has the authority to judge you. And that's exactly what will happen. And the same way you judge another, with the same degree of unfairness, is precisely how you will be judged.
1: Let me see if I can take that a step farther. Please. <clears throat> My belief is that your relationship with God is contingent to you learning to be more and more like God.
0: Okay. Yes.
1: And if you don't, you're not going to, your relationship's going to suffer.
0: Relationships are not static. Mm -hmm. They're active and they progress. You're going to start one place, but you're going to end someplace else. (laughs) Hopefully that someplace else is going to be better. That's the idea. And as it evolves over time, it grows and it improves. That's exactly what you're talking about. If we, if we judge another unfairly, if we condemn another based upon an unfair scale, if we criticize or judge another on, on a standard that we ourselves refuse to live by, guess what happens to us? We get judged the exact same way. Over time, we learn how not to do that. Uh, this is actually the basis upon which the Lord's Prayer is oriented. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Wow. I
1: have a sidebar comment, and then I'm going to be quiet. Please. Hopefully. <laughs> I don't care. Go. <laughs> okay. Carl Rogers, who was the son of a Presbyterian minister developed plant-centered therapy, or non directive therapy. Mm -hmm. And he seemed to take some of these things that you're talking about as the basis for his therapy. Mm -hmm. One of them, you don't ever judge. Mm -hmm. Because if you start judging somebody, they're not going to be able to develop a relationship with you, and they're not going to be able to be honest with themselves.
0: That's really, really, really profound think about how we are received by God the essence of grace is beyond mercy grace is something we don't deserve and cannot earn and it's God's love and favor and it comes to us regardless of what we have done without recourse to judgment and that's how God deals with us but the instant we start judging another the instant we start judging another, we are rejecting that, that essence of grace. We are to share grace with others. We are to live lives graciously as, as we are treated. We are to treat others. And when we fail to do that, we make it, I'm not going to say impossible for God to give us grace, because nothing is impossible for God. We make it impossible for us to receive God's grace. Um, one of the ways to look at this is a, uh, your arteries—they can get clogged up and make it difficult for blood to flow through, and make it difficult for oxygen to get to your brain. And and when we judge others, it's like the plaque gathering on the inside of our arteries, and it makes it impossible for it to get th- for the blood and the oxygen to get through because of what we have done, placking up our arteries.
1: And in fact, our-
0: Yes, our hearts become hardened. Hardening of the arteries, hardening of the heart. Mm-hmm. In a theological sense, it's precisely what happens. We crust ourselves up. And, it, and if we refuse to forgive, and if we refuse to be gracious, as we have been received grace, and if we, if we want to judge rather than go forward graciously, then we will clog up our spiritual arteries. It, it, it works, and it works amazingly well. And the degree to which you can let that go is the degree to which the blood of the Spirit of God can flow through your life.
1: Spiritual Lipitor.
0: Yes, spiritual (laughs) lipator. Absolutely. Absolutely. Being open and willing to receive freely God's grace without judging yourself is tough enough. You've got to release others, too, and yourself. That's why when we go to the table of the Lord for communion, the only area of examination is to be our perception of the presence of Christ and our need for that presence. We are not to judge others. We are only to focus on ourselves. And it's not on our... Ability to receive, because we—if we did that—we would never come forward to receive. It's on Christ's ability to give, and His perfection, and His love, and His grace. And when we do that, the, the Eucharist is like spiritual lipitor, <laughs> in, in in a way. It, it, and when we do that, it clears us out. If we are willing to do that, we can. It it, it can and will flush out that which stops up our spiritual arteries.
1: We're supposed
0: to play the ball game without keeping a score. Yes, yeah. How many
1: ball games
0: can you play? You you don't keep the score. That's not the 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 score. The score for the is is already been won, the game has been won by Jesus. He has all the points. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, to you to put it in, into in that. the
1: physical act of playing a game. Yeah. yeah, you're talking about that.
0: Yeah, 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 just actually playing the game. Yeah. Yeah. Be merciful. Be merciful. Verse 36. Yeah, be merciful. Just as your Father is merciful. Open, giving verse 37 do not judge and you will not be judged do not condemn and you will not be condemned forgive and you will be forgiven give and it will be given to you a good measure pressed down shaken together running over will be put into your lap for the measure you give the measure you give will be the measure you get back he also told them a parable now this is really a collection The same is true over in Matthew's Gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, but it seems like it's an integral collection, all done at the same time, and it's not. Here we have even more clearly, it's a collection of teachings that have been put together here. He also told them a parable. Can a blind person guide a blind person? Will not both fall into a pit? (coughs) Don't we do that all the time? A dispute, and excuse me, a disciple is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully qualified will be like the teacher. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Mm-hmm. Or how can you say to your neighbor, Friend, let me take out the speck in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. I have heard it said, and I kind of agree, that that story, the speck and the log, is amongst the most powerful statements. On a philosophy of life that Jesus ever articulated. A Buddhist scholar looking at this, Dr. Kishimoto looking at this, said right there you have the essence of all wisdom. If you live your life this way you would not have to worry about judgment. You would not have to worry about receiving mercy because you would be giving mercy continuously. You would be dealing with yourself first and realizing that what looks something, like something major in someone else's life is nothing compared to your own. First of all, that problem is a lot closer to you if it's in your own eye. It's a log, friends. Or it's just a speck in theirs. It's a log in yours. Plus, it's in the way of you being able to see what's going on, reality, in their eye. It might be that that speck in their eye is actually more of an extension of what you've got in yours. We're really good at projecting. Really good at projecting. Huh. Wow. That's very powerful.
1: Which is a defense mechanism. Oh, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. No good tree bears bad fruit, (laughs) nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For it is out of the abundance of the heart, and notice this last line here, that the mouth speaks. I saw something on Facebook the other day that I wish to God I had saved, and now I can't find it. And it's a hand with tons of words tinyly written all over it. And it said, how much different would our posts on Facebook be if every word that we spoke or posted there was printed on our bodies for all to see. Well, very much the same as this whole concept here. How much different would it be? How much different would we speak if everything that we said or did was printed all over us? For out of the abundance of the heart, for out of the abundance of the heart the, the word there is cardia now you have to remember in the ancient world and especially at this time they moved the seat of thought one foot down from the head to the heart and the seat of the emotions from the heart to the gut everything was moved down a foot the head was pretty much worthless except that was where the eyes and the mouth were located in the ears they didn't think the brain was where you are they moved everything down a foot in both cases. We say our emotions are in our heart and our brains are in our head. They said your brains are in your heart and your emotions are in your gut. We still use some of those terminologies. We feel things really intensely in our gut, if you think about it. Ulcers. Huh? ulcers. It, well, it generates ulcers often, yeah. And But we put our emotions in our heart. Well, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about emotions here. He's talking about the abundance of your thoughts, your mind, the, 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 who you are, the, the essential, the abundance, I, I'll translate that heart as thoughts. For out of the abundance of your thoughts, your mouth speaks. And, and that's true. I mean, you know, first thing that comes into your mouth often comes right out your mouth. First thing that comes into your brain often comes right out your mouth.
1: Really? Huh? If you're an extrovert. Well,
0: that's so, true. An that's
1: an <laughs> I'm an extrovert,
0: ENFJ. <laughs> I'm an ENFJ.
1: INDJ. You
0: would think about it. Oh yeah, but as an extrovert, it pops right out. I share that gift. See, I would say Jesus was also an extrovert. <laughs> Did you know where you're oh, but he was so
1: well grounded and everything. Yes, he okay. was.
0: <laughs> far better, far better than me. Yeah, uh, and I have to catch myself. So you know what I often do rather than post a response on a bulletin board or on Facebook, I will write the response, but I won't post it. So I'll write it in a in a text field somewhere else and I'll write it out and get it out of my system. Well, that's a good idea. And then if it's if it's really controversial, and then if I and then I'll, a little bit later I'll read the what I'm gonna to respond to again and I look at my response and then I may adjust it and then post it, or I may just ignore it and dump it. And that gets it out of my system. And so I, I don't post nearly as much as I would like to. Or as I would. Come on in. So in I don't post nearly therapy, as much as I would. Where
1: you, you, you know where you stand with somebody. Feel it. Is that oh, it, that
0: is true. It's <laughs> nice to have someone who um, uh, does speak their mind. But sometimes the mind doesn't need to be spoken.
1: And we. You now, I'm so extra. <laughs> um, the introverts, the, f- the thoughtful ones, the ones who think about it before they blurt it out, they appear, though they may not be, but they appear so much wiser.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: There, there's a really good book, too, about the strengths of introverts. And oh, yeah. not often appreciated in our society, but it's, oh, no. and, and again, not a gift, but it's, they're right
0: They're necessary. In fact, the introverts and the extroverts are necessary. Both are necessary. And Rosa Parks was an introvert.
1: Was she? I didn't know that. Interesting. So tell me your your ENFJ. ENFJ.
0: But I'm borderline J and I'm borderline F. So but I'm strong E and a strong I'm end. An uh, uh, I'd, love to de- I'd love to give Myers-Briggs to the congregation and see what everybody's That's responses really would be. It's fascinating to look at that. Why do you call me Lord, Lord and do not do what I tell you? Mm-mm. Ow, Jesus. That You're an extrovert when you say that. That hurt. Ow. Why do you call me Lord, Lord and do not do what I tell you? I will show you what someone is like who comes to me hears my words and acts on them that one is like a man building a house who dug deeply and laid the foundation on rock when a flood arose the river burst against that house but could not shake it because it had been well built but the one who hears and does not act is like a Notice, the one who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the river bursts against it, immediately it fell, and great was the ruin of that house. Now, later on, we're going to hear about the parable of the sower. And this will come into play there. And we'll come back to that when we get to that. But we will hear about the parable of the sower. And we'll have some foundation there to look at this parable again. Let's step back and take a look at it. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? We, We claim that Jesus is our Lord, but do we act like it? Do we act like it? Not mostly.
1: That's why we have the confession in our service. Uh, yes. <laughs> I had someone ask
0: me actually the question, why are we doing the confession of sin every Sunday? Uh. <laughs> we have something to burn every, every day, hour. <laughs> hour. <laughs> Why shouldn't we? I pray the confession of sin morning and evening prayer every day because I know I need to. Even in the time between when I get up and when I do morning prayer, I've added to the list somewhere in there, somehow in there. Even if it's just a sin against my poor puppy dog, it's a sin for me to do it, and I know it
1: is. What'd you do to your puppy
0: dog? Oh, well, I was impatient with her because she was taking her sweet time about getting up, so I pushed her off the bed. Oh, okay. <laughs> Why do you call me Lord Lord? Courier, courier. And do not do what I tell you. (coughs) I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. Notice, come to, hear his words, and acts on them. All of those are active verbs, not passive, active verbs. I had somebody else ask me, why do, I, why do I stress that faith is an action? Because it is, and it was to Jesus. Anytime it's passive, which is what he's getting ready to describe in the second group, it's worthless. It's not really faith. You come to Jesus, you hear his words, and act on them. It's like a man is, or like someone who builds a house, digs deep, deep, digs deeply... To the foundation of rock and builds on that, rather than on the shifty surface. And if you've built on a foundation of rock, when the flood arises, the river burst against that house but could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not act, now you've heard, you've come to Jesus because you've heard and you've heard. Okay, those are two good things. You've come to Jesus and you've heard, but then you don't act how stupid is that but that but we do that frequently and the one who does that is like the one who built a house on a the ground without foundation when the river burst against it immediately it fell and great was the ruin of that house first parsonage back in North Texas was the parsonage at Celeste United Methodist Church it was like living in the Leaning House at Six Flags the foundation had slumped from the, the end of the house where the kitchen and the office was and the living room was down to the master bedroom on the other end. So that when you were standing in the master bedroom, you look out through the window, you, you were looking out at ground level even though that window started about waist high. <laughs> and, and when you put a can of peas in the living room, it rolled without touching it all the way down the hall on its own. <laughs> It was like living in the Leaning House at Six Flags. They tore it down and built a brand new parsonage there. I was happy to see when I went out there the other day and was, uh, drove through Celeste. I gotta see the church. So I turned down the street and I drive in. Wow, they built a fellowship hall. Wow, they tore down the old parsonage. Uh, or burned it down or something. And, and, <laughs> and, and built a new one, it's a lovely house. Wow, that's, that's cool. I bet it's not the Leaning House any longer. But it was because it was built on, not built properly, and this is that's what he's talking about here if you don't build your house on the foundation of rock it's going to be unsteady well listening to Jesus is like doing that building your house on the foundation of rock listening to Jesus and not acting upon it is like building on shifty sand so you've got to listen and then act and that's what we don't do And when the church is properly criticized is when we listen, but don't act. Or we speak, say something good and proper, but then don't behave that way. Our creed has to match our deed. What we do must match what we say. And so frequently we don't. We don't. ooh Are there questions or observations? Because if not we're gonna move into chapter seven.
1: A lot of time you know, the creed gets more important than the deeds. Oh yeah. And you got the creed, you only know it, everything. And yes. On the statements or the literature or whatever mm-hmm. is more important than yeah.
0: the actual deed. The creed and the deed have to be in balance. What you do must coordinate with what you say. Sure what you, you, no. Yes, <laughs> you need to. Please <laughs> take one and pass. And I said
1: exactly what I was so frequently
0: there and, and it's by the way it's also problematic to act and not believe yep. if you don't hear first before you respond you may be responding wrongly or the reason why you're doing whatever it is you're doing could be in error motivation is important too you're,
1: you're, you're. If you're not listening real well, your act could be not very good. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Okay, chapter seven. Um, The bishop asked. uh, In the North Texas Conference, we are doing this study on Luke and Acts, and the bishop did the first three chapter commentary on it. Uh, Diane Dietz, who's the pastor at First Bonham, did the third, fourth, uh, excuse me, the fourth, fifth, and sixth chapters commentary. And the bishop asked me to do chapters 7, 8, and 9. And I've completed 7 and 8 and working on 9 now. Um, This is my thoughts on Luke chapter 7. It's yours to keep and take with you if you wish. And it's a bit of a commentary, a running commentary, on on chapter 7. And you'll get one for chapter 8 when we get there as well. So you can just kind of keep that and use it to follow along if you wish. I'm not entirely sure how close I'll follow to what I wrote, <laughs> but we'll see. Okay. Chapter 7. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the, of the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion there had a slave whom he valued highly and who was ill and close to death. When he heard about Jesus he sent some Jewish elders to him asking him to come and heal his slave when they came to Jesus he appealed to him earnestly saying he is they appealed to him earnestly saying he is worthy of having you do this for him for he loves our people and it is he who built our synagogue for us wow so this is not just any ordinary run of the mill roman soldier This is, yes, he's part of the Roman occupation, yes, he is a Gentile, but he's a God-fearer. What's known in the Acts of the Apostles as God-fearer. He is one who has great respect for the Jewish people, has studied the Torah, understands the importance of following Yahweh. He's not become a Jew, but he's as close as a Gentile can be to that. So much so that he even built their, that means he didn't do it necessarily with his own hands. He paid to have it built, their synagogue. Wow. So this is an important man. This is one who uh, is recognized for who and what he is. And Jesus went with them. But when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but only speak the word and let my servant be healed. For I also am a man set under authority. The soldiers under me, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Wow. That's a powerful account there. Now, in my commentary, I talk about this. Take a moment to notice the nature of those who receive the healings in chapter 7. One is the servant of a Roman centurion but not just any centurion this is a righteous gentile and one who has recognized the authority of jesus the servant is healed in large part because of the faith of this man who is nevertheless a soldier of an occupying power this is critically important in two senses first it affirms that the messianic ministry isn't limited to the hebrew people but is open to all a theme which will grow in importance particularly in the acts of the apostles secondly note that it is a servant who is healed, the lowest of the low, a servant of a Gentile, has been delivered from the edge of death. We know very little about this slave other than that his illness is extreme and that the centurion cares enough for him to seek his healing. Now, there's something else about that servant that uh, we don't even know if he's a Jew. I mean, the soldier's a Gentile. Mm -hmm. Is it possible? It is possible that this servant isn't even a Jew. So yes, indeed, the gospel is open to people other than just Hebrews. That's critically important. The Jewish people were not a proselytizing people. They did not believe in going out and making converts. They just didn't do it. You could become a Jew. You could convert to Judaism. If you married a Jewish woman, your children would be Jews by their own definition. Um, but they weren't really interested in making converts. That just wasn't what they did. So, and, they, and they viewed Gentiles as being kind of, well, icky outside of the covenant community. They ate things they weren't supposed to eat. They dressed in ways they weren't supposed to dress. They treated their women differently they live their lives differently, they didn't follow the regulations and the rules of the Mosaic Covenant um, they were strange. Now this admittedly, this centurion is not your run-of-the-mill gentile he's a God-fearer, a righteous gentile one who, in public at least, follows the dietary regulations and treats people appropriately according to the Mosaic Covenant so, in that sense, he's not, it's not entirely the same but he still is a Roman centurion. And his servant is not identified. Other than he's a servant. Who is sick. Near death. And then notice. When, it, when Jesus is coming. The centurion stops him. So you just say. Then he'll be healed. And that's enough. And it says that Jesus was amazed At his faith. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. One of the first places here where the word faith is very important, and that and and that's extremely important for this chapter and for the next. Is the essence and nature of faith. All right. Hmm. what do you think about this? Gentile, his servant is sick. Jesus uh, is asked to come and heal him. They sent a delegation to ask for healing. Jesus is going, and he sends out word. That says, "Don't come. Just say it, and that's sufficient." And that, and, and it happens. It says, verse ten, when. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. How do we understand this? So often the healings of Jesus are depicted as either on the one end, signs of who and what he is, or on the other end, acts of compassion from God for people who simply need to have the healing touch. But this story is goes a step further than simply a sign of who Jesus is. It teaches us that the gospel is open to all. It teaches us that it is that healing is often dependent upon faith. And it also will start the process of us thinking about healing as more than just physical but also the spiritual component component that we normally think of as salvation which becomes extremely important in the next chapter it's also important here when we get to the end of this chapter Hmm. soon afterwards he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went with him as he approached the gate of the town a man who had died was being carried out he was his mother's only son and she was a widow and with her was a large crowd from the town when the lord saw her he had compassion for her and said do not weep well that almost seems kind of cruel i mean you know her son is dead her only son is dead don't weep he says then he came forward and touched the bier and the bearers stood still and he said young man I say to you rise the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother fear seized all of them and they glorified God saying a great prophet has risen among us and God has looked favorably on his people this word about him spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. Now, think about the context here. This is a woman and her only son, and he was dead. And they're crying. She is crying. She is distraught. What is some, What? well, let's just look at the commentary again. I guess that's the, probably the easiest way to, to deal with this one. Likewise note towards the bottom of the paragraph on the first page likewise note that it is a widow's son who was raised widows were among the m- more vulnerable people of that society a son gave his widowed mother a voice in commerce and in politics that women that without him or some other male she would have been denied women were non-entities in that culture. They were not legal entities. They couldn't engage in commerce other than very limitedly and they they did not could not engage in politics. They had to do so through males. Husbands, sons, fathers, brothers, through some male only in rare instances could a woman act as her own agent and this is true not just in judea this is true in the gentile world too it was, rare was the cleopatra who got to act politically and and, and and people paid attention to her usually women had to act through male agents so here's a widow which means her husband's dead and her father's probably dead because well she has a son and she's a widow and the son, the only son is now dead. She has no, probably has no male to interface between her and the culture. So this is a disastrous event for her. It's more than just her son is dead and that's bad enough. But this is disastrous <laughs> for her. <clears throat> Absolutely disastrous for her.
1: Is, are you talking about the significance of, of the word that says and the dead man set up?
0: Yes. That's where, that's where well, I'm didn't going. didn't
1: say he was coming back alive. Well, it, he set up, he was dead, but he was...
0: He's up. He, he was, was dead. It's, there's no question the man is dead. He's not just sick and they thought he was dead. Yeah. The indicator there is this is a real... Dead person. Dead person who's now alive. Well, he's now alive. Now it? he's alive, yeah. He wasn't just dead. Well, he's, he's now speaking. talking he's not the walking dead he's now okay. he's not actually he's the he's now the talking dead okay. uh, he's actually alive now because he's now talking again and and it and, and it removes the possibility that this is a misdiagnosis
1: mm-hmm.
0: by the way mm-hmm. which is how some people want to interpret it a son gave his widowed mother a voice in commerce and in politics that without him or some other male she would have been denied Jesus' compassion for this woman like his approval of the faith of the centurion results in healings that are more than just nice therapeutic good deeds they address social and political injustice writing them not just in word as in his sermon in chapter 6 but also in deed all right. so, so essentially These two healings have that in common We have a servant Of a Gentile Who is healed By the simple statement Based upon the simple statement of faith Of the centurion And we have a woman Whose only son A widowed woman Whose only son Who's dead Is now raised Back to life that's indicated by him talking. The dead man sits up <coughs> and then <coughs> speaks. You don't speak unless you're alive. He changes that circumstance too. Not just a good D, not just some nice therapeutic event, but he's righting civil wrongs, cultural wrongs. Hmm. It's tremendously significant that the Widow
1: herself is a player in this scene only because she is.
0: We know nothing about her. And it has nothing to do with her. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I- exactly. That's exactly right. And, and and she does nothing other than grieve. Mm-hmm. She's grieving. That's all she's doing. And Jesus sees this, and decides to intervene. To correct the situation. That's, that's very powerful. Okay, uh, I think we've come to a good spot, so let's go ahead and call it quits there. been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, senior pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Commerce, Texas, and rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2015 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org.